0: Hundreds of migrants go down with the ship off the Greek coast, the ugly truth on where the responsibilities lie. Seven years behind bars, the sorry state of journalism in Algeria. Plus, the whistleblower and his legacy. One last look at the late Daniel Ellsberg. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Another terrifying tragedy has stained the Mediterranean Sea after a boat carrying around 750 migrants capsized off the coast of Greece. The scale of this disaster once again has the media focusing, at least temporarily, on what has grown into a perpetual crisis. The death toll leads the coverage, and another angle simmers below the surface. The anti-immigration policies of EU governments that exacerbate what migrants face and the media outlets reinforcing that message. The Greek government has denied responsibility for failing to rescue the sinking ship, a line largely echoed across the mainstream media there. Greek investigative journalists, though, more independent ones, have pushed back, revealing the people on that boat asked for help that never came. The larger contextual problem the shortage of quality news coverage on the root causes of migration and how catastrophes at sea can be avoided. What does it take to make a migrant's death newsworthy? They're drowning at sea on Europe's doorstep because it's not an unusual development. Sometimes it takes an image, like that of a dead Syrian child in 2015, Alan Kurdi, who washed up on that Turkish beach. Or it can be a number, the scale of the tragedy, in this case, 750 people. Should the story make headlines, the pattern that follows includes European governments, in this case, the Greek one, shrugging their shoulders, saying there's nothing more they could have done. (laughs) News consumers should be grateful, however, that some Greek journalists can be more proficient at their job than the politicians are at theirs.
1: The account given by the Greek authorities that this uh, vessel never uh, sent out a distress signal was totally refuted by our reporting. We showed that many, many hours before the boat sank, uh, the people had contacted uh, alarm phone saying, "We will not survive the night. We need urgent help." And all the correspondence shows that this message was relayed to all authorities, uh, Greece, Frontex, the UNHCR. So this argumentation has no basis at all
2: Investigative reporting that has taken place through alternative sources, initially um, in Greece, information that came out from the grassroots uh, alarm phone that helps people who are stranded in the Mediterranean, presented evidence that showed that the people on the boat actually were seeking repeatedly help for uh, 12 hours before actually the boat sank.
3: The Greek Coast Guard uh What conveyed that the boat was being monitored. It was sailing towards Italy. The BBC has reported that the boat was stationary, that it was not moving towards Italy. This would suggest that the tragedy that occurred perhaps could have been averted. So what we have now are two narratives that conflict quite dramatically and will be the subject of investigation.
0: The news angles the BBC picked up on providing them with more eyeballs, first appeared on two independent Greek news sites, News 24-7 and We Are Solomon. Such sites provide a different kind of journalism than the vast majority of Greek mainstream outlets, news channels, and publications that are largely in lockstep with the government's anti-migrant politics. Those outlets have been known to demonize migrants, exaggerate their numbers. They also make a habit of going after more independent journalists whose reporting contests what has become a dominant news narrative in Greece and much of Europe.
1: Every reporting that we have done, no matter how well documented, has been uh, labelled as fake news, even by government officials. This is really dangerous because it feeds into Twitter. I have been doxed on Twitter. I received multiple uh, threats, problems, even with friends who say, "What are you doing? Why are you pursuing this? Do something nicer." The, the, the Greek media only pay attention when there is some sort of response by the government or the authorities, which is uh, taken as gospel. People saying, ah, the BBC, who are they, you know, what do they know?
4: And it falls
5: into this whole narrative that that some politicians really like to push and which unfortunately works for media because it gets the former uh, a few more voters and it gets the, the latter a few more viewers or readers because they scare people and then they say, oh, but I'm the solution. See, I'm, I can solve your problem, uh, which, you know, isn't really a problem. I mean, the numbers of people we're talking about uh, in, a, in a European Union of 450 million people, the number of refugees and migrants are, is tiny. And the way that some politicians have been, it, it's like it's the biggest issue there is.
2: The empirical evidence cannot verify those narratives of migration as a threat to Europe. The most European countries have built their economies, but also their culture through flows of migration for many, many decades. Just look at the arrival of more than 8 million uh, refugees from Ukraine. Europe has space for migrants. So there is an extreme contradiction here.
0: Ukrainians, it must be added, are white and mostly Christian. It is a distinction that makes an indefensible difference in too many European countries where the migration issue has been harnessed and used for political gain. Right-wing leaders like Giorgia Maloney in Italy and Viktor Orban in Hungary push a line that is now being echoed by some European politicians from the left who see the electoral benefits of fear mongering corporate-owned news organizations that either share a conventional conservative ideology or are enticed by the commercial upside
3: of peddling those narratives, then put them out there. My European buzzword in recent years is the breaking the business model of the smugglers, attributing the issues we see to smugglers, exploiting human misery for profit.
6: Non, mais les frontières de l'Europe, ça a un sens. On doit les protéger, on doit mettre plus de garde aux frontières et on doit casser ces réseaux de trafiquants.
3: Those who look into these issues more deeply would also see that smugglers, in a sense, are a symptom rather than the cause. They're not the reason people are moving towards Europe. They're profiting from this movement. Breaking the business model of the smugglers has become quite a focus of official government narratives, although it's not actually addressing the fundamental reasons impelling people to move towards Europe.
5: The government and
3: the EU, they
5: they tend to respond to all of these tragedies in kind of a similar way, you know, it's not our fault, it's all down to uh, uh, these terrible people smugglers and we tried to save lives.
2: This
5: is a nonsense narrative where Uh, The EU and many of its member states have actually been cutting search and rescue at sea. They have is what is essentially a let them die policy. So always when you're reporting this subject make that connection an avoidable disaster. We can avoid these things if we make the right policy choices in Brussels and in European capitals.
0: How far will European governments go to stem the flow and stop the boats? They'll cozy up to North African dictators, if that's what it takes. Earlier this month, Georgia Maloney accompanied the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to Tunisia, where they dangled a check for a billion euros in front of that country's president, Kais Sayed. The offer came two days after Maloney said, failing to safeguard Tunisia's economy would lead to more migrants crossing into Europe. Safeguarding Tunisia's democracy, which Syed destroyed two years ago, crushing its legal system, arresting scores of his political opponents, is clearly not the priority for the EU that stopping the boats is.
5: So you go to an oppressive regime, you give the oppressor money, And so that person is more powerful and able to oppress people more with that new power. And then you wonder why people want to leave and then they drown because of EU policy that doesn't want people fleeing oppression. It's madness. It is a complete failure of moral leadership in the EU at every level, at the Brussels level, at the national level, across multiple member states. It's insanity. One final comparative
0: point on an ongoing crisis that is almost always underreported. There are occasions, rare ones, when it doesn't take a huge number of casualties to get the global media to focus on the loss of a few more lives at sea, such as that other big story from this past week.
2: A search is underway for a small submersible off the coast of Newfoundland.
0: That luxury deep sea tour of the Titanic when something Went wrong. Those lives are deemed more newsworthy, more marketable. On behalf of the United States Coast Guard and the entire Unified Command, I offer my deepest condolences to the families. Cram migrants on a boat, however. Have them set sail for a better chance at life. And the likelihood is their deaths will go unreported. They will drown in anonymity. End of story. India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, is on a global diplomatic roadshow. His latest stop, Washington, D.C. Meenakshi Ravi is here with more.
7: Richard, this is a busy year of travel for Narendra Modi, and this visit is among the most important on his agenda. India is at the centre of a number of geopolitical issues. As the most stable government and economy in South Asia, it provides a vital counterbalance to China. And throughout the war in Ukraine, New Delhi has managed to maintain working relations with both Moscow and Kiev. Modi's visit to the United States has provided photo ops aplenty, starting with him leading celebrations for International Yoga Day, then being hosted by Joe Biden at a state dinner. He's also had a chance to touch base with the Indian diaspora in the United States, which is influential. Back home, Modi has been able to rely on news channels to hype the trip to domestic audiences. Which doesn't hurt, not with elections coming up next
8: year. A
3: personal invite from Biden is a testament to PM Modi's worldwide global credibility and acceptability.
7: As for President Biden, facing an election in 2024 as well... Modi's visit gives him additional exposure to millions of Indian-Americans, a group of voters growing in size and influence. Sullying the celebration somewhat, objections to Narendra Modi's record on human rights. And there was this, a full-page ad in the Washington Post from the Committee to Protect Journalists about press freedom in India, which has taken a hit since Modi came to power in 2014. The world's largest democracy, as India brands itself, has grown significantly less so under this government. Thanks, Meena
0: to the southern coast of the mediterranean now and algeria where just a few years ago in 2019 citizens rose in revolt against their ruling elite their new president Abdelmajid majid taboon promised to build a new algeria a more democratic one that was never going to be easy since taboon knew that in order to stay in power he required the continued backing of the Algerian military and when a journalist Essan El Kadi questioned the prospects for radical change he ended up in jail this past week he was sentenced to 7 years albeit on a different charge. He is not the only one feeling the heat. Many Algerian news outlets have been squeezed, suspended, or shut down altogether. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on the gradual silencing of dissent in Algeria under its current president and the military powers that be.
9: It was a lovely day. We went to Zamouri, a a little uh, beach town, to spend the weekend. We went for a run in the morning with my dad. And then in the evening, the phone rang, and it was people from the security services asking my father to go to the headquarters. We thought that it would be just another interrogation, because during the past four years, he has been interrogated on several occasions. But then two hours later, we heard someone knock on the door, and then we saw six agents, and they gave him five minutes to change his clothes, and he, he left. The next day, they took him handcuffed to the offices of Radio M and Maghreb Emergent. They asked all the journalists to leave the offices, and then they took all the equipment, like the computers, the phones, the printers, like everything, and they
10: sealed the offices. Tin Henan is talking about her father, Esan El Khadi. Until six months ago, he was one of Algeria's leading journalists. This past week, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. The charge, foreign financing of his outlets for political propaganda, out to harm the security of the state, charges Tin Hanan calls bogus, part of a long witch hunt of a journalist who's been a thorn in the side of the Algerian government. There are numerous theories as to what triggered El Khadi's latest arrest. It could have been this tweet. It could have been this podcast. It could have been this op-ed, penned for Maghreb Emergent just one week earlier. His latest
6: article, I think, was the reason why uh, he ended up uh, in prison. It is basically an informed opinion article that analyzes a tension between the army and the president, and the tension is about the upcoming election in 2024. It made them so angry, all of them, that somebody would dare talk about the army not being happy to have him run again as a president. Talk about frictions between the army and the president is not something that you wanna do in Algeria today.
10: Algeria today is run by President Abdelmajid Taboun with the backing of the military brass. It's far from what millions of protesters had hoped for back in 2019. The movement, or Hirak, demanded more democratic governance, something anything other than a fifth term for the then-president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika. Hopes were raised when Bouteflika stepped down. The new president promised to listen to the protesters' plight. But many remained skeptical that someone anointed by the old guard could really deliver a new Algeria.
8: Most of Algerians did not buy this narrative of new Algeria. Since the exit of Bouteflika, we've seen General Gaid Saleh, who was on television every week, addressing the the nation openly. So the Algerians understood the real locus of power, meaning the military, were still there and they were still gonna run the show.
9: Many actually say that Tabun wasn't really elected by the people, but he was rather designated by uh, the army, which has historically been like the most powerful institution in the country politically. And uh, the, the military is really the kingmaker uh, in the country. And Tabun was seen as the, the favorite option for
8: General Gait Saleh. President Taibun talked about change.
4: First, with the
8: but what was really striking was the fact that while he was talking about amending the Constitution, repression was at, uh, at its highest. He was cracking down on civil society organization, on journalists, on bloggers, on Facebook influencer, and so on and so forth. So I think the message was pretty clear that Algeria was still ringing in the old.
10: Old tactics die hard. More than a dozen journalists have been arrested, others jailed. A number of news outlets have been suspended or shut down. And there's a new media law that critics say is strengthening the state's control. But perhaps the most overt change has been the president's public attacks on dissenters, describing journalists like Hassan al-Qadi as khabarji,
4: informants. A
10: few weeks
9: before the trial, the president went live on national TV to say my father was actually a spy or an informant.
4: <laughs>
9: this was at a time where the investigation was still going on, so it was a huge breach to my father's presumption of innocence.
6: If the president
9: says, uh, this guy's
6: a snitch, then like we all know that the judges are going to feel compelled to sentence the
4: journalists. <laughs>
6: That a president takes the responsibility for accusing uh, journalists on TV, on national TV, we've never seen it before. The Algerian regime have always shown a level of intolerance for like public criticism, but it never went to this kind of a machismo, and it just paralyzes everybody. Like, nobody wants to suddenly become taboons uh, khabarji.
10: We put all this to President Taboun and his Minister for Communication. We didn't get a response. But we have a pretty good idea what his answer would have been because he delivered it just last month on World Press Freedom Day.
4: Time
10: and time again, Taboun has reiterated that freedom of the press in the country isn't just fine. It's flourishing.
6: Oh, he does that all the time.
4: That's
6: the only answer he has. His answer is always like,
4: look
6: at how many newspapers we have. But this is not an answer. It's not about how
4: many you have. It's about
6: how, how
8: many real newspapers you have. How many real journalists you're throwing in prison? We have this narrative that it has one of the most vibrant uh, press in North Africa. What is in reality on the ground is totally different. What is on the ground is that a regime that wants to control and to keep the media but also civil society organization on a tight leash. Repression against uh, the media and the press is escalating because the regime wants to make sure that the last voices of dissent and that the Hirak are uh, dead.
10: Neither the president nor the military want a repeat of 2019. Tabun is looking to the next election in 2024, doing everything in his power to project the right image both at home and abroad while casting his critics into the shadows.
8: The country is trying, after 10 years of isolation, to display the image of a country that is changing, a new Algeria, as Taboun said, uh, a country that is more open. But bottom line, there is no new Algeria. This narrative is totally false. The military remains the real power in Algeria. And what happened to Al-Qadi Hassan and to many others shows today that the problem is the same. It's just uh, really uh, shocking that the last, one of the last
6: journalists who are still trying to stay faithful to the idea of professional journalism, of independent journalism, is in prison. Most other dailies, news uh, websites uh, TVs are just mouthpieces of the regime, applauding to everything that is happening and cheering for this like slogan, the new Algeria slogan of uh, Abdelmajid Tabun. Ehsan al sentence is indicative of the desert that they want the Algerian media landscape to become.
0: And finally, this past week saw the death of someone once described as the most dangerous man in America. Back in 1971, Daniel Ellsberg helped bring an end to the Vietnam War by leaking the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. Those documents revealed the way the US military was misleading Americans about that war, on everything from its origins to what was happening on the battlefield. To learn more about one of the most important whistleblowers of our time, start with this obituary in Current Affairs Magazine. It's a long read by Vietnam veteran W.D. Earhart. He measures Ellsberg's impact. The University of Massachusetts Amherst has what it calls an Ellsberg archive project. You can find a five part podcast there on his life and legacy. For a documentary style deep dive, hearts and minds delves into America's disastrous involvement in Vietnam.
5: The question used to be, might it be possible that we were on the wrong side in the Vietnamese? war, but we weren't on the wrong side, we are the wrong
0: side. Ellsberg was charged under the U.S. Espionage Act, that's the same law being used against another whistleblower, Julian Assange, five decades later. In this episode of ABC Australia's Late Night Live podcast, Ellsberg draws parallels between the two cases. Julian Assange,
1: if he were extradited to this country uh, and prosecuted and convicted, it would be an unjust case, uh, unjustly tried and unconstitutionally
0: applied. As Daniel Ellsberg often told Americans, anyone who appreciated what he revealed 50 years ago should also support Julian Assange and the legal fight he faces today. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post.